take our Bibles and look to Matthew's Gospel, the 18th chapters. We're continuing where we left off last week. We're picking back up there as Christ is sharing with us about His deep love and affection for His sheep. There's a basic pillar stated in soldiers' creeds that if you have served your country in a, an armed force, you probably know that you will leave no falling comrade behind. I like the way the U.S. Army Rangers stated in their creed, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. They have a great, tenacious way about them to go behind and get those who might be wounded and left, to never leave them in the pathway of the enemy. In fact, there have been many a times that a troop or uh, troops would go in after a fallen a member of their uh, regiment and them themselves be wounded and oftentimes killed. Uh, you, you recognize that, that there's great cost and sacrifice in that kind of a statement and truth and stand. But they would willingly do it because they believe with all their being that no one is to be left behind. How much more should it be for those of us who are soldiers in the army of Christ, who have been commissioned by the Lord's commander of His army to go and to engage a lost and fallen world to the victory of Jesus Christ? How much more should it be in us that we would never leave a fallen member behind in the pathway of the enemy to be destroyed by the enemy Instead, we should have the same mantra as those of the armed forces, to never leave one behind. Jesus was sharing such a principle as he was in Matthew 18, giving discourse about his love for the sheep, both those in the fold and those who may wander out of the fold and gone astray. He says in that parable that he would be willing as a good shepherd to leave the 99 and go seek after the one to rescue the one. And of course, you and I are to have that same restoration ministry. Christ Jesus is a restorer. He is a rebuilder of everything that is broken. He is a reconciler, bringing back into account people rightly before a holy God. And now he has commissioned us to do the same. His ministry did not stop when he was ascended to the right hand of the Father, but his ministry actually multiplied so that you and I could each be engaged in that and collectively we would be the body of Christ still seeking, still saving, still rescuing and redeeming people unto the glory of Christ. May that be our purpose for being in this text today. I should be reminded with you that Jesus said of himself that God did not send him, the Son, into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, in order that the world might be saved, he would bring that saving grace. So he continues to seek and save today. He continues to seek to restore today. He's still looking for single sheep who have gone astray, and he does that through the church. You and I have a great role to play. In fact, I would say that it is the only way that Christ initiates a restorative ministry through the life of his church, the people who are his, who belong to him. Now, with that in mind, let's read the text out of Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, listens to you, 
You have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I want to just make some statements about this text, and the first of which is just a foundation. Then I want to dive into the richness of the text and how we might process what Christ is calling us to do today. And the first is this, just the a basis of the, the argument that I'm going to pose today about Christ, is that Christ followers are called to live holy lives in sweet fellowship with God and with others. So back in Matthew 12, Jesus tells us who's in the family of God. His mother and his brothers were actually outside of the house where Jesus was teaching, and they made reference, the people did, about them being out there. And Jesus took the moment to pause everyone to say, who, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he said that those who are doing the will of the Father are actually his family, that they are his mother, that they are his brothers and sisters. So we understand that those who are in the will of God, who have been redeemed by Christ himself, have been brought into the family of God. They have been lovingly adopted by the redemptive means of Jesus Christ. And, of course, the Holy Spirit authenticates them, and the, Spirit, uh, the, the God the Father accepts them. Now, that's a truth that we ought to stand on, that identity that we have in God. That God has chosen us, Christ has accomplished our righteousness, and the Spirit authenticates that we are genuine children of God. That is our identity. And when we understand that identity, then we can live as God has called us to live, as holy as He's called us to live holy. I don't think you're going to be able to, to attain holiness apart from a relationship with the Holy God. I don't think you're going to be able to achieve holiness by doing works of holiness. I think it comes by the declaration of Jesus Christ, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and by the call of God. He empowers us that we might be able to live in a holy way. And he says for us to live in that way. So this relationship that we have with God that's very vertical is meant to draw us to the holy understanding of who we are and engage life in that holiness. But now, just as important as this vertical relationship is the horizontal relationships are as important as well. When you and I understand that we are collectively brothers and sisters in Christ, we will engage more in the holy way of Christ. In other words, you are not going to be engaged in the holy walk of Christ in this world without being connected to the holy family of God in the church. Now, I know that there are some that would counter that, but Jesus wouldn't counter that. Jesus wants us to understand the vertical relationship that we have with him is important, as is the horizontal relationships that we have with his family is important to our walk in holiness. We need one another. I'm just going to put it out there. 
I need you. And you need one another. And you need me. It's what family is meant to be. Of, of support and help and journeying together. So Matthew 18 reveals that Jesus is longing for us to have close fellowship with him. He wants us all to be in the fold where he can care for and nurture the flock. But for some reason, we have a tendency every now and then to pull away, or to become estranged from the family, or in the description that Jesus gives, to go astray from the fold of Christ. It's there in the fold that Jesus can lovingly care for us and nurture us and provide for us to bring rest to our soul and spirit and bodies. When we go astray, Jesus is very attentive. He's attentive to our going astray, and he seeks after us. Isn't that what the parable was all about last week, right before this, uh, these few verses that I've read today? That Jesus is that shepherd who is loving and good, and he goes after the, the astray, the one who has ventured off. Now, it's not just this parable, but many other parables describe that. There's an image of a woman who loses a cherished coin, and she looks all over the house. She can't find it. She sweeps the house, turns the place upside down, and when she finally finds it, remember what she does? She calls all of her neighbors to come celebrate with her that the coin has been found. Listen, that's not a story about a woman and a, and a found coin. That's a story about a God who finds and rescues us in our lostness. But it's not just that story. It's other stories like the prodigal son who ventures off to do his own will rather than the will of the Father. He leaves the Father's household and he goes and lives his life in a sinful way. And it's bringing brokenness to his life. And when he discovers the, the remembrance of what his Father's household is like, he turns his attention to go back there, even if it's just a slave, to go back there. And while he's going, he finds the Father running to him with great interest and wrapping his arms around him, putting the cherished ring back on his finger, putting the robe on him, and calling for his whole family and all of his household to throw a celebration because the son has come home. Over and over and over, we get the notion that Jesus is seeking after people, longing for them. And it's not just a parable of being sought after when one is lost outside the kingdom of God. It's a son who has a father, whose father is lovingly longing for him to come back home. It's a son who never lost his relationship as a son and a father, but one who had lost his way. It's the father running to the son. That's the heart of Jesus, constantly going. And as he finds and discovers the one lost sheep, he brings it back in on his shoulders, as Luke says, and creates a great joyful experience for all people to celebrate that. So this is what we're joining Jesus in doing. We're joining him in a re redemptive and a restorative ministry. Redemptive for those who are still in their sin, dead in their spirit, redeeming them unto Christ because of his accomplishment on the cross, but also restoring those who have been in the fold but who have ventured away, who are estranged from family. So Jesus is telling us to lovingly confront people for the purposes of restoration. In fact, you know to this point that confrontation doesn't have to be ugly. In fact, it can and should be loving. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, a loving confrontation for the purposes of restoration. 
Now, one of the challenges of the church that is evident today is that the church has become accepting that sin is within the church and that it's inevitable that sin will be in Christians and non-Christians alike. We've come to that place that's unbiblical, uncharacteristic of God's truth. Instead, God's people are meant to be holy people, different from the world, radically different from the world. Need we forget that we have an identity, and our identity in Christ is not as sinners, but our identity in Christ is as saints of God, members of the household of God. Somewhere along the way, we begin to ignore the call of God to be holy as He is holy and be imitators of God as He called us to imitate Him. Let us recall the Spirit's urging in the Scripture to cleanse ourselves from every defilement and body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. And let us hold to the truth that those who belong to Christ have crucified the desires of their flesh and its passions. Let us re-engage in this holy walk. Each of us must stand on this truth that Christ has died in order that our sins might be wiped clean and His righteousness given to us. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where He rules and reigns the whole universe and He has sent by His Father the Holy Spirit to dwell within us that we might walk empowered to be holy. Let us stand on that truth, church. But we have a tendency to teeter and fall, don't we? We have a tendency to lose our balance on that truth and venture off the holy walk that Christ has called us to and to discount the Holy Spirit's voice as He speaks truth and conviction in our life. We have a tendency to do that. As the psalmist would write, prone to wonder Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And when we teeter and when we fall, it's not Jesus alone who seeks us, but it's the faith family of Jesus who should come alongside of us and help us to be righted again, repositioned on that rock of truth and a life lived with great purpose and intentionality of holiness and righteousness, demonstrating well what a citizen of the kingdom of God is like. You and I need one another in that way, that we would help one another stand uprightly. There's a saying in the world that has somehow become adopted into the faith family. It's wrong. Live and let live, the saying goes. Randy, just live and let others live. But that is not the way of the kingdom of God. That is not the way that the citizens of the kingdom of God live. That is not the way family lives. Instead, we are to engage as God engages us. So Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, obviously, there's a direct order there. It's a command of God to go to those individuals and speak to them. And I would say that that's purposeful on our part to do that, but it ought to be purposeful on our part to live in a way that we can be spoken into as well. That we would live our life openly with one another and engage in real conversations about how we walk in holiness. 
And where we find ourselves leaning or where others find us leaning, by the Spirit's word and power, we can be righted unto the glory of Christ. This is our call. So Jesus says it just outright simple. Go and tell them their faults. I don't know about you, but I really struggle with that. Instead of going and telling, I want to walk away and be quiet. I had this sense about me at times so things will get better. But Jesus didn't say wait till things get better. Jesus says go and tell them their fault. What is he wanting us to do to be the Holy Spirit's conviction? No, no, no. We're to be the restorative arm of the Spirit, calling them back to the sweet fellowship of Christ and his beloved family. You know, when it comes down to it, love does not sit idly by while somebody is venturing further and further away from God. Love does the opposite. Love presses towards the person. Even when we feel emotionally tweaked about that, when we have uh, some sense of uh, timidity about us, love pushes forward. It takes the effort even to go uncomfortable in order to share the restorative work of Christ. Love expends the emotional and spiritual energy. And man, does it ever cost energy to exchange in that way with someone truthfully. Love takes the risk to confront. I don't need to remind you, you know yourself. It's a risk. I've had the conversations with people, need to have a lot more. Well, hey, brother, come, let's sit down and talk. And this is what I've discovered. Would you tell me if that's true or not? And in that moment is a risk. And the risk is, will they ever allow me in their life again? Will they ever allow me to look in their eye again or me to look in their eyes? Will they ever be of the same relationship that we once had? It's a risk. But I can tell you for the eternal treasure of that relationship, it's worth the risk. It's worth it. And Jesus is calling us to that kind of energized engagement relationally to love someone regardless of the risk. Now, when we are confronting, Jesus tells us here's a prescribed process that we go through. And I would say you, you have to do it and I have to do it exactly as Jesus has prescribed it to be. The, the purpose of confronting someone is so that the sin is brought to the forefront so that the heart might be restored and the fellowship with God and His church might be uh, sweetened again. So when the, when the offense comes about, in our culture today, the first response for a number of people is just to post about it. I, I want to be guarded not to offend anyone, but I'm just going to throw it out here. America has come to the place where we are complainers, and we look for the opportunity to complain. That's not who we are. And that is certainly not who the church of Jesus Christ is. Where is the grace in complaints? By the way, what does a slave, which I'm called a slave unto Jesus Christ, what is a slave doing complaining about anything? I'm a mere slave. 
And in my slavery to Jesus Christ, I do all that I do unto his kingdom. And one day, I will not be a slave. One day, I will be a co-heir with Christ, enjoying all that he possesses. But until that day, I am who I am and ought to live out the expressions of that. But oftentimes, people today... Rather than biblically confronting somebody, they use the weapon that the enemy has at its most easy uh, place. They use social media. They tweet about it. They post about it. They blog about it. But the kingdom of God is radically different from that. When a Christian posts a grievance against someone else on social media, it negates the, the words of Christ and they deliberately disobey the instruction of Christ that he's given to them. And they become like the one who has sinned against them. They become a sinner just like them. So we have to be very guarded about that, not to be enveloped in this cultural place of just airing everything out there. The Bible says, Randy, you ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Jesus says, you go to your brother, and you and him have a discussion. It's one-on-one. The first step is simply going, not waiting. Don't ignore it. Don't avoid it. Don't talk about it to other people. Hey, Al, what do you think I ought to do? You think I ought to do this or that? That Jesus didn't say to do that. Jesus said, go straight to the person and have the conversation with that person. You don't need somebody else's opinion when the master of the universe has spoken to you, right? Just go to the person. Go and have a grace-filled conversation with the person in the hopes that restoration will come. And if you don't have a conversation with the person, you're just going to brood over it. And as you brood over it, anger is going to build. And as anger builds, hatred builds. And now both of you are in a bad spot. So let's take the words of Jesus and go directly to the individual and have the conversation. And when we have the conversation, the interest must be on the offender. Now this is counter to the world. The world would say, oh yeah, you go to them and you get that off your chest. You go to them and you bring it out and you balance out the hurt and the misery. You both ought to walk away having some sense of satisfaction. No, no, no. Jesus says you go to them one-on-one and you have your view on the offender. Your purpose is restoration. Can you come back from that conversation as if a shepherd has come back from looking for a strange sheep with him on the shoulders and bring him back into the sweet fellowship of the fold? And can you be in relationship with God and each other afterwards? Your purpose has to be, is your mindset on the offender? Go after the offender. Don't look to get your peace. Don't look to say your peace. Don't look to bring some kind of balance to the misery. Go with your sole focus on the offender to bring them back to the fold of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus says, if they're not reconciled as you go to them one-on-one, then seek the help of one or two others where two or three can be witnesses in this repentance and restoration ministry. So you're bringing a couple more people into the conversation who also identify the sin in the individual. And so you, you bring them with you into the conversation. Now, you've got to be careful here because the conversation could go one or two ways. It could be in the conversation now with the group of you that the other witnesses point out, hey, Randy, you're off base on this. After hearing our brother or our sister make explanation, you're just off base and you've gotten yourself wounded in all 
contorted on this, and they may reset me, they may reset you, I'd say that's good. But it could be that the offense of God and the people is true. And those witnesses, along with you, could bear to account that fact. And maybe together with a restorative hope and with love that is being expressed and an encouragement to come away from that sin, maybe the three of you can move that person to a restorative place. But perhaps not. If the person is still not reconciled, then you take the matters to the church, the authority over the lives of people, so that everyone who is engaged in that might lovingly pursue the person. Now, it's really evolving and elevating. Remember, this is not a community event. This is not for public discussion. This isn't about us airing it to our co-workers and our neighbors and those who are following us on social media. This is about the church, the brothers and sisters of Christ who love God and who love each other and find someone who is separated. And together, collectively, the church prays in earnest and the church seeks after those individuals. I believe that when the church engages like that, the way the Spirit of God is engaging, trying to draw that person back that it is very difficult for somebody to stay in their sin, to stay removed from the fellowship of God, and discount the nature of the body of Christ. I just believe that for the majority of us, we'll come back in to the beautiful fellowship that Christ provides for us among the faith family. But perhaps not. Perhaps some are so resolved in their sin, and I've encountered some like that, Jesus says, then you exercise the authority that the church has been given. God gives the church authority to discipline the unrepentant in a final hope of restoration. In fact, Jesus says, you treat that individual who is unrepentant, you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, you and I know that Gentiles in the early church were not in the kingdom of God. The gospel had not moved outside of Jerusalem. By the plan of God, Jesus determined that the gospel would be first proclaimed in Jerusalem and there would be a solid base built of kingdom citizens. And later in the diaspora, it would be that the church would scatter all around and they would become the witnesses all throughout the Gentile region as well. That was part of God's strategic way for the gospel to make its mobilized movement across the world. But prior to that, the Gentiles and the tax collectors were treated out, as people outside the body of Christ. And that doesn't mean it's the haves against the have-nots. It's the haves. I have salvation in Jesus Christ. I've been redeemed by His mercy and grace. And man, do I ever long for other people to have that. So they go after the Gentiles, they go after the tax collector for the hopes of of redeeming them by the blood of Christ Jesus, announcing to them the word of God and the witness that they have of who Christ is as the Messiah and inviting them into the kingdom of God through Christ who is the door. So Jesus says, treat the offender, the one who is unrepentant, treat him as that. Treat him as one who is outside your fellowship, but man, do you ever long for him to be in the fellowship? You ever long for him to be repentant or her to be repentant? Treat them in that way. 
You're not going to have communion with them. You're not going to bring them into your house in a fellowship way just because you enjoy hanging out with them. If you bring them in your house to have a meal with them, it's for the purpose of restoration, to call them again out of sin, to pray with them earnestly, to share God's word with them. Everything about you is intentional. Just like we don't engage in deep relationships with unsaved people, we engage in relationship with unsaved people for the purpose of introducing them to Christ. And as they come to faith in Jesus Christ, we can have deep relationship with them because we have a commonality of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the kingdom of God. Does that make sense to you? Well, you're kind of quiet. Have I, have I offended you? Sort of some tough teaching, no doubt, right? But Jesus knows that we have this way about us to want to wander away. And he wants to make sure that there are people who will lovingly confront us when we do so to bring us back to the kingdom. Now notice what Jesus says. When the church exercises that kind of discipline, what is bound on earth will be bound in heaven and what is loosed, when that person comes to repentance, is loosed in heaven as well. It's the authority that God has given to his church for restoration and we ought to exercise that restorative ministry. So, when we lovingly confront someone with truth, as biblically instructed, we can be certain of God's presence. Jesus says it this way, where two or three are gathered in his name, his presence will be there. Now that's probably one of the most out of context verses that people use in the wrong way. They'll often state the verse correctly, but they state it in the wrong context. Maybe it's a gathering of worshipers who are coming together, and the person says, Oh, we're glad you're here today. Where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, He is present. And we obviously have more than two or three in the room. Aren't we grateful for the presence of God? Or maybe there's a small gathering. It's a prayer group of four or five. And somebody says, oh, thank you, God, that two or three are at least gathered, for we know your presence. And that's the wrong context. That is not what Jesus is saying. In fact, you and I who are saved by Christ Jesus have the perpetual presence of God. It's not like he goes away and comes back again when we meet two or three of us together. God is with us forever, and he promises that. There is nothing of greater magnitude of the presence of God when we are gathered together on Sunday morning. God is just as present in my prayer closet or on my knees in my office or sitting at the table with Kay with our Bibles open and our prayer engaged in our heart. His presence is just as significant then. But what Jesus is saying when your heart is like my heart and it's loving and you have a restorative way about you and you are following the purposes that I have laid out for you step by step by step, you can know uniquely that my presence is in the midst of that. You and I are together in sync, Jesus is saying. But you and I have to follow the process as Jesus has laid it out. You can't circumvent it. You can't skip the ones you don't really like. And you can't go straight to social media and tell the way it ought to be. God blesses with his presence in the midst of people 
who obey his son. And man, do we ever need that in the church today. A restorative ministry. A heart that longs for people not to be left behind where the enemy can come and destroy. But we determine that we will leave no person behind. That we will leave the 99 in order to seek the one. And when we get there, we have a one-on-one conversation for the hopes of restoration. And when our conversation may fail, we bring two others with us that together we might urge our beloved sister or brother back into the sweet fellowship of God and his family. And where that doesn't work, we bring it to the authority of the church and we ask the church to engage with all purpose of restoration. If that doesn't work, you remove them from the fellowship so that maybe they'll recognize the protective covering of the church is not worth risking their lives over because they want to stay in their sin. Maybe they'll come to an understanding of what they're going to miss. It's all about the restoration. So what is our attitude and how do we go about this? Well, first I would say we not be Pharisaic. This passage is not meant to be putting you and me on the alert for sin and confronting it as we see it. That is not what this passage is about. You know, the Pharisees really chap us, don't they? Because where Jesus and the disciples are, the Pharisees are fairly close by, just looking see what they might do. Oh, did you see him pull the heads of grain right there? It's the Sabbath. That's against God's law. No, it's not. Oh, did you see that they didn't ceremonially wash their hands? Did you notice that they don't even fast? They're just constantly wanting to point out sin. That is not where you and I are to be. This is not a movement of the Pharisees brought to us as if we're going to look for sin. No, no. This is a passage where we are living relationally with people, open our lives to them and them to us, and we have this great dialogue. And when one goes astray, we seek after them for the purposes of drawing them back to the fellowship of God in His church. I would say as well that we need to look inwardly, not outwardly. Jesus is pretty clear about this. If I could personalize it, it would be something like this. Randy, why are you looking for the speck in your friend's eye when you have a plank in your own eye? First, remove the plank in your eye, then you can go and help somebody. How are you going to see with the sin in your own life? So before we start looking outwardly, we need to look inwardly. Oh, Father, what do you find in me that is not of you? Where have I grieved your spirit? Where have I quenched his work in me because I chose me over him? We look inwardly. And as we're looking inwardly, we invite people to do the same. This is going to be pretty vulnerable. Hey, can we have lunch today? You sit down at lunch and you have this very candid discussion. I really want to walk in the holy walk of Christ. I want to live as Christ has afforded me to live, and the Spirit of God is moving in me to live. But I struggle, and I'm here as a friend asking you, will you look into my life? 
And where you find me off from the way of God, would you point that out to me? And I'm not going to be defensive. I'm not going to try to explain it away. It's just you and me. I really want to walk away from this conversation understanding more. If you have that conversation and you have a friend who loves you, without question, that friend would say, you might want to consider this or that. Now, it's going to be best for you not to say much while they're talking to you. Because if you're like me, you're going to say, yeah, but just receive it. And probably, maybe then or maybe later, that person will circle back to you and say, okay, my turn. As the Spirit of God lives in me, holiness resides in me, and I want to walk in that holiness, would you point out anything in me that you see that's not of God? Now maybe I venture away. Maybe I choose my will over God's will the way of the world over the way of the kingdom. And I don't ask you to point that out. Maybe I stop attending church, stop singing and worship, stop in my daily reading of God's word, stop engaging the spirit in prayer. And before you know it, I'm saying things that I ought not say, doing things that I ought not do. What are you going to do then? Will you come after me? Will you have the one-on-one -on -one conversation? Some of you say, well, I've been looking for that opportunity for a while. It works best when you're in close relationship with people. It's not like you're going to be able to be on the outside, the perimeter of life, and lob your attack towards me. I'm probably not going to receive that well. But if you and I are engaged in relationship, and the way I determine that is if you weep when I weep and you laugh when I laugh, then we're pretty tight in relationship. Will you come seek me? Who in your life group ought you be seeking right now? Who around you that you've been in relationship with is not in the sweet fellowship of God or his family, the church. Who does God want you to go seek after? With a loving heart, with a restorative ministry, longing for them to experience the fullness of God. Now let's just take that and pray about it for a moment. In this moment, Lord, you're probably addressing sin in our lives individually. Attitudes, words, actions that are uncharacteristic of the holy call that you have given to each of us. Uncharacteristic of one who is indwelt by your Holy Spirit. And as you do, Lord, I pray that you'd find us quick to confess, agree with you about that, and be quick to repent, turn away from that, and press towards your holiness. And Lord, I pray that that would bring honor to Jesus who made that possible. Maybe in this moment you've put somebody on our thoughts. Somebody who has wandered away and we've left them behind in enemy camp, enemy territory. And today you have challenged us to go have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with love 
And we recognize, Lord, that that's great risk to us. But the risk is greater to the one who stays in their sin. So God, give us courage, I pray. Pour in us great faith that we might be courageous and strong and loving and seek after those who have estranged from the family as Jesus does the same. Use us as your body, I pray. And may the sweetness of the fellowship that you have provided to us by the shedding of blood be known to us individually and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may they know more about the love of you, God, because of our love for them. May that bring honor to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.